Today, we discuss the dark side of the economy, money laundering. Black and white. You're listening to Black and White, a podcast by Satya Law. I'm Wen Jian, co-founder of Satya Law, and in each episode, we'll be discussing current legal issues with a focus on finance and tech. Join us as we discover how these developments impact business, finance, and the legal industry. On today's episode, we discuss criminal monies. We want to know how they are laundered and what this means for all of us. We have a very special guest with us today, Anna Blizzard, Senior Managing Director of FTI Consulting and the head of its Financial Crime Compliance Practice for Singapore and Southeast Asia. Anna, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Me too. We also have a returning guest, our Associate Director at Satya, Victoria Ting. Victoria's practice focuses on white-collar crime, fraud and investigations. As our listeners may know, prior to Satya, Victoria was a prosecutor in Singapore and has conducted many successful money laundering prosecutions. So, to kick things off, Vic, can you break down what exactly money laundering is? Hi, Wenjen. I would summarize it as any process by which some value of criminal origin is converted into some other value that looks legitimate so that the possessor is free to use it within the broader economy. I like to start by looking at the phrase itself, money laundering. So the phrase is so ingrained in our collective consciousness as the process by which dirty money is washed. But did you know that the phrase also derives in part from the actual use of laundromats? Well, I had no idea. (laughs) Essentially, back in the days of the Great Prohibition, laundromat businesses were very popular choices among gangsters trying to disguise their earnings from the sale of alcohol. And why is that right? If you picture your humble corner shop laundromat with its rows of coin-operated machines, it's an exclusively cash-based business. Customers come by anonymously to use the service, no questions are asked about identities, and no receipts are given. So imagine a cartel has some drug money which it wants to use to buy a house. The cartel is afraid that a seller might ask about where it got its money from. The cartel might then decide to buy over a laundromat. The laundromat may have very few actual customers, but because of its cash-based nature, that's very difficult to verify. The cartel puts the drug money through the business and tells the seller, well, look, I have this successful laundromat business. If the seller accepts the explanation as regards the source of wealth, then the laundering objective is achieved. Well, that's very interesting, Vic. So I think it's pretty obvious why we are all here talking about money laundering today. Our local listeners and maybe even some of our international friends would know that recently, this tiny little island we call Singapore has been riveted by the news of the $1.8 billion raid pulled off by our Commercial Affairs Department, or CAD. But before we dive into talking about that case, outside of financial institutions and legal professionals and advisors, why should money laundering matter to the average person on the street? Obviously, money laundering itself is a crime. But I think sometimes people forget all the different crimes that are behind money laundering. You know, the crimes behind the crime, so to speak. This money is often linked to drug money, to drug cartels, to child trafficking, to wildlife trafficking as well. There are many other crimes behind this, which is why we really want everybody to be behind the fight when it comes to money laundering. 
Yeah, I think the difficulty about AML is that because there's so much regulation around it, there's this tendency to dismiss it as kind of a chore or a checkbox ticking exercise or some sort of hindrance to doing business. But at its heart, AML is a necessary complement to effective crime prevention. People don't commit crime for the heck of it. Usually they commit crime for a financial incentive. Yeah, I guess if criminals think that they can get away with their crimes by laundering the proceeds and turning them into what may appear to be legitimate sources of income, then there's no incentive for them to stop the crime, right? Yeah, AML is what enables us to make sure that criminals don't get to enjoy the spoils of that crime and remove the financial incentive for them to commit that again. But, you know, for your everyday man on the street, I think it's important to remember that ML is a very distortive force. It distorts market demand, it distorts prices, and very often that has a negative impact on the everyday person. So you imagine someone who wants to buy a condo apartment, not because they want to live in it themselves necessarily, but because they want to use that property as a vehicle for laundering. It's likely that that person is going to pay above the market price to drive the price up because later they would be able to sell it for a larger amount of money and launder a larger amount of money. And in many ways, when you're spending what isn't actually your money, you're more flippant about it. So in that case, the example of the criminal, he would have outpriced the legitimate buyer of the property. Okay. So going back to the $1.8 billion rate, more than 20 suspects, I believe, have been named in relation to money laundering offences, and seizures have included luxury apartments, exotic cars, expensive watches, wine and bags. Police officers caught a suspect jumping off the balcony of a $20 million mansion. Which begs the question, what framework does Singapore have in place to prevent money laundering, and are they really effective? Anna? So, in terms of frameworks in place, then the primary legislation relating to money laundering is the Corruption, Drug Trafficking and Other Serious Crimes, Confiscation of Benefits Act, or CDSA. It's quite a mouthful. I know, I'm glad we've got acronyms here in Singapore. And of course, not to forget our CAD, Commercial Affairs Department, which specialise in investigations of white-collar crime, including financial crimes such as money laundering. So overall, Singapore is tightly regulated and they're also an active member of FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global standard setting and oversight body for anti-money laundering. In terms of effectiveness, then I think really a lot of this comes down to successful execution of the requirements, as at the end of the day, regulations and frameworks are only really one piece of the puzzle. Great points, Anna. Your experience obviously spans the whole region. And of course, I think you started your career in Europe. Now, I'm interested to know, Anna, how would you say Singapore systems compare against other countries? Well, as I mentioned just now, Singapore has a strong legislative framework. However, in the past, FATF reports have raised some challenges around effective implementation and weak enforcement has also been cited. However, I think it's fair to say that there has been a fair amount of progress since the last FATF review and the next one is due in 2025. So I guess we'll see then. There are various other indexes out there that can really help, though, to see where Singapore is in comparison to other countries. So one such index is the Basel AML Index, and this gives a risk score to different countries in terms of their overall exposure to money laundering and terrorist financing. And they look at five different dimensions, including the quality of AML frameworks, financial transparency, public transparency, and also legal and political risk. 
So looking at the latest Basel AML index, Singapore gets a score of 100 out of 128. Now, 128 is actually the best score. <laughs> you yeah. had me worried for a second. <laughs> exactly. So Singapore comes in in kind of the top quarter, but it's certainly outside the global top 10. When we look at it from a regional perspective, though, and, and look at the East Asia and, and wider Pacific region, then Singapore is amongst one of the strongest. Um, it's behind New Zealand, Australia and Taiwan. But when we look a bit closer to home, there are many other countries within the Southeast Asia region that are significantly weaker than Singapore. So Myanmar, Cambodia and Vietnam, for example, are pretty much at the bottom. So when it comes to a regional perspective, Singapore's fairly strong. But really, if we look wider afield, then really the European countries are certainly far leading the way when it comes to being one of the stronger performers in this area. How about Dubai and Hong Kong? Because I think Singapore, Dubai and Hong Kong are very much always mentioned in the same breath as global financial sectors. Yeah, good question. Overall, Singapore is still doing better than both Hong Kong and UAE. So if we look at the index, Hong Kong gets a score of 68 compared to 100, remembering that the lower the score, the worst, the rating. UAE is a score of 44. So I think it's fair to say that Hong Kong and UAE have got some work to do when it comes to trying to level up to Singapore. So in short, Singapore is not doing too badly, but we can do a lot better, right, Vic? Yeah, I would say that that's fair. And it's definitely something that the authorities here are conscious of. We are quite continually tightening our regime. And that's consistent with the fact that the present FATF president is a Singaporean. So for instance, the Financial Markets Authority here, the MAS, is now developing what they call the Cosmic COSMIC platform with the six biggest banks here. And this platform is supposed to facilitate information sharing among the financial institutions about red flag transactions and customers. And just two weeks before the CAD's $1.8 billion raid, MAS also proposed tightening AML rules for family offices that manage the wealth of single families in Singapore. Of course, that's not to say that the system is exhaustive and there will always be some loopholes. I'll use the example of expensive watches because that's uh, quite topical at the moment. Among the items seized by the CAD in their latest raid were a very large number of very flashy looking watches. Singapore has what we call the Precious Stones and Precious Metals Act. This imposes AML requirements on dealers in certain precious stones and metals, such as reporting requirements for transactions in cash above a certain threshold. The PSPMA applies to precious products, including watches finished in a precious metal, wherein at least 50% of the value of the item would be attributable to that precious metal. So if we think of a platinum watch encrusted in diamonds, where the value of the piece is derived from the value of the platinum and diamonds, that would come within the PSPMA. But for some other watches, where the value is derived instead from the rarity of the piece or its complication of movement, and not in fact from the value of its composite parts and materials, then that piece would conceivably fall outside the reach of the PSPMA. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I think it really highlights the challenge when it comes to regulation. You know, you can't have regulation that's going to cover every single conceivable item that's out there. Okay, so if we take a few steps back, it sounds like in Singapore, we have pretty strict regulations already in place. 
but many people might be asking after the recent news on the raid, are the regulations enough? How is it possible that we have our CAD conducting $1.8 billion raid like we saw in the papers a few weeks ago? Yeah, and I think the other question that's come up, Wenjin, is why did these actors choose Singapore as a place to set up shop? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I think also there's been some comments around, is it because of the regulatory regime, etc.? And I don't think it is really. I think there are a number of challenges, especially when it comes to this particular case and challenges in general when it comes to regulation. Some of it is related to operating effectiveness, for sure. But others, I think, are really linked to Singapore and its unique position, both geographically, but also as a major financial centre. There's challenges when it comes to being a small country surrounded by many others. There are many other different jurisdictions different regulations and laws that you have to comply with. And from a global policy perspective, draft a policy that is going to adhere to the strongest regulations so that that is mandated across the board, but then also have local addenda that are going to cover any of those specific jurisdictional nuances. I think one of the other challenges with Singapore is the sheer volume of inflows that we see into Singapore. And that actually makes it much more difficult to be able to detect some of these transactions. It's much more difficult to pick out those anomalies as compared to, say, a jurisdiction that has much lesser or smaller volumes coming in. I think talent is a challenge, and, and that's a challenge across a number of different countries as well, not unique to Singapore. But ensuring that within the industry, you've got skilled persons that have the right knowledge and the right experience. I really understand not only what do they need to do, but I think why do they need to do that as well? So if we take the example of funds coming in, do you really understand properly the source of those funds or the source of wealth of the customers that you're dealing with? And to not take information that's provided at face value, but to really think about, does that story make sense? One of the other challenges that I see in the work that we do with financial institutions is really around data as well. There is so much data <laughs> and so much information out there nowadays, but it's often very siloed into lots of different systems and those systems don't necessarily talk to each other. So when it comes to sharing of information, Victoria, you talked earlier about um, Project Cosmic. But actually, even within financial institutions themselves, they have trouble sharing that information amongst themselves and really getting that complete picture of a customer. Yeah, I think banking is just one of those sectors where there's such an anxiety between AML and adherence to counterterrorism financing. But on the other hand, remaining faithful to your banking secrecy obligations. And it puts financial institutions in quite a difficult position. What about technology? What role do you think technology has played in this? Technology is advanced. Criminals have got access to that technology. And so it's a case of having to play catch up. I mean, it's always been a case of having to play catch up. But now with the technology, I think that's been compounded. And so, for example, if you've got sophisticated criminals, you know, they are increasingly using things like virtual currencies, cryptocurrency when it comes to committing money laundering offences. Yeah, We've also seen some criminals do really funky things with technology. For instance, we've seen people who 
commit cyber attacks or some sort of online fraud. And then the proceeds of the crime are distributed using algorithms through so, so many wallets, more wallets and within a shorter amount of time than it would have been humanly possible for one person to do. And I think that really underscores Anna's point, which is that technology is increasing the difficulty of regulation because there are so many more things that we never knew were possible that we're now having to protect against. But Anna's response to me has really been right on the money. Singapore doesn't, by any frame of reference, have a lax system. And to me, what the news of the CAD raid has shown is that our enforcement authorities really do have the capability and the competence to pull off what is a very sophisticated operation. It would have taken many, many man hours and very complicated planning to have frozen $1.8 billion worth of assets with very few leakages. And it also shows that our reporting systems are working the way they were planned to and that the authorities are getting the information that they need to carry out their ops. So the answer to the question why Singapore doesn't seem to be system fallibility I do think that sometimes there are some non-financial factors that we have to consider. Anna has mentioned that Singapore is a very mature economy. We're very open. The ease of doing business is very high. But along with that, we're also a cosmopolitan city. We've got great food. When Jen's Malaysian, he might disagree. <laughs> We've got <laughs> the best property, great things to do, and excellent travel links. And I think the same factors which would attract a well-qualified expat here would hold equal appeal for a criminal flush of cash. Okay, with these developments, I can imagine that AML risks are going to be increasingly important, especially for the financial industry. One final question for each of you to wrap things up. Anna, name two money laundering trends that give you the greatest cause for concern. I think the first one and the hot topic really is virtual assets and crypto. We have seen a massive increase in the amount of crypto that has been used. Number of reasons for that. Obviously, trying to obscure the ownership. There's still a lack of know your customer KYC undertaken around cryptocurrencies. Travel rule is trying to get there, but there's still a lot that needs to be done in terms of getting all the different countries on board. And it's just an easy and quick way for criminals to move money. You know, they can use things like mixers, they can break large amounts into lots of small amounts and push them through lots of different wallets. And so that makes it really difficult to uh, follow the money. The second one, I think, is online gaming or really any kind of platform in which you can convert fiat currency into a kind of stored value where you can move it around within the platform, gift it to others, and then essentially take that money and convert it back into currency. And we're seeing an increased amount of money laundering being used in that area as well. And Vic, suppose you can play legislator for a day. What changes would you make? I was dreading this question. <laughs> okay, one of the things that jumped out to me in the news is that they found one man who was linked to more than 200 companies in various capacities like director and secretary. And to me, there is definitely some low-hanging fruit for increased regulation there. In Singapore, there's a requirement for companies to have at least one director who is either Singaporean or a Singapore resident, but there isn't a cap on the number of directorships that one person can hold. So the same person can serve as director for multiple shell companies, which in turn facilitates money laundering. 
I don't see why we can't limit the number of directorships that one person can hold. It would also be consistent with the duties of due diligence, which a director has. One person can't possibly discharge these duties towards 200 different companies with any reasonable degree of diligence. A more murky proposal that has been floated in other countries is also some sort of failure to prevent money laundering type of offence. Jersey, for instance, has an offence where if a company's employee commits money laundering, the company could also be criminally liable for the failure to prevent the laundering unless it had sufficient systems in place to protect against that risk. The UK is right now also considering a similar offence and I think the House of Lords recently came out and said that they thought it was a good idea. So we'll have to watch that space to see if the fad of standards, for instance, progress in that direction and also whether Singapore follows suit. Sally, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you very much to the both of you for sharing your thoughts. Thanks, Wenjen. Thank you. You've been listening to Black and White by Satya Law. Join us in the next episode for more insights on the latest developments in the legal landscape and how they impact us all. Thanks for listening.